So we are in the book of Judges, and this is the second week. And um, book, uh, Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. And last week, uh, as we sort of shoved the ship off, if you will, uh, gave an overview of Judges, uh, we basically um, looked at the Bible as a whole, as a movie. And this was the theme of the movie. We sort of, one of the things we highlighted is that the theme of the whole Bible uh, is this, that God, one of the ways you can look at it is that God is a covenant keeper and we're covenant breakers. And what we said established last week that uh, when you look at Judges, it's like a, it's a rough book. And I actually didn't read, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we didn't read about Ehud this morning, but, but it's a rough book. And this scene, if you will, in the whole movie is a scene of God, uh, of us God seeing some of the, um, the, the, really the heinousness and the pattern of God's people and, and us being, uh, but particularly here in this point in history, being covenant breakers in their sin. So it's a little uh, dicey book in some ways. And so you can hear more how we shoved it off if you're going to go online and hear last week. But um, so that's where we are. And we're, we're going to begin this morning um, looking at a, the first couple of judges that are mentioned. But I want to say to you, one of the things I hate when I'm watching TV uh, it's particularly after a sporting event or something great happens, is for them to interview someone who's done some great feat or won the Super Bowl or something like that, and they get on there, and what would you like to say? You know, it's like, here's what they usually want to say. If you work hard and you try hard and you give it your best, you can do anything you want. You ever heard that? Does that frustrate you a little bit? <laughs> like, come on. I'm a little cynical about it. Like, that's just not true. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you guys, I want to go on the senior tour of the PGA and I'm going to go work hard and try my best. I just couldn't do that. I mean, I'm not good enough at golf to become that. Or if Hudson were to come to me and say, Dad, I'm going to be a center in the NBA, starting center of the, in an NBA team. I'm like, buddy, until, we're probably, you know, you're, not, you're probably not going to be an NBA center based on your height and, you know, things like that. And what's, that's not in the cards for you. I understand the sentiment because some people do need to hear in their life that there are things that you're not doing, and you ought to give some effort to that. And try, but that—that so that's a weird tension. Oddly enough, reflecting on what we're looking at today, this week, I remembered a quote. This is an odd quote. I think it was my my senior. Y'all don't. Most of the young kids don't know what annuals are, or or, uh, what do you call them? We call them annuals. The uh, uh, yearbook. That's the word. I'm sorry. I think it was my quote under my yearbook, my senior year or something. Casey Kanem. You remember who Casey Kanem was? He did the weekly top 40, Americans top 40. I used to listen to that and hear the top 40 songs. And so, um, and he, uh, he had a quote at the end. He'd always say, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Does anybody remember that? So keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. And, um, uh, and I sort of liked that. It sort of identified with me. You know, I hoped one day I would play for Alabama, and that might be one of the stars I was going for. I don't know. But you see the tension that I'm going to go after something, shoot for the stars, but stay grounded and keep your feet on the ground. And then you're sort of like, can I reach the stars? Is it possible? What, is it, what does the quote mean? But you see that tension, right? Oddly enough, when I became a Christian, uh, my favorite, and it's been my life verse as long as I can remember, my favorite verse, and uh, most of the people that know me well would know this, is 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Well, if you look at the passage here, 1 Corinthians, but by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God. So you see even Paul's tension, do y'all see that tension? You see the similarity of that quote that I sort of identified with as a kid? And Paul says, I labor more than anyone, but it's not I, but it's the grace of God with me. 
And sort of this tension of what do you, how do you go after things and pursue? And I think that, and yet at the same time, be honest. And he's, he's saying, I labored more than anybody, but it was not me, but it was God. And so did I do it? Did God do it? I mean, you see that? I think, um, I think we feel that in the Christian life a lot. Um, we often say to each other, it's like, nobody can be perfect. And that's a doctrine. We don't believe anybody can live a perfect life. Only Jesus did that. So nobody can be perfect. And yet, there's such a high calling to fight sin. Which is it? Do I reach for the stars or am I grounded? I don't know if you've ever felt that. I, I think a lot of people are beat up by that tension and they don't know it in the world. And some people give life and Christianity their best shot and they become pretty arrogant. And compare themselves to everybody else around them, they feel pretty good. And some people, I think you encounter in their brokenness and the spirals of their life, they probably down deep know that they couldn't reach those stars and they, whatever their star may be, and they just give up. In college ministry, when I was in college ministry for a long time, that was usually what I encountered, churched kids. And some of them were so self-righteous and thought they were good. And I was like, the Bible says no one's good. And then there were others who sort of figured it out. It's like, I can't be as good as the church was asking me to be. And so they just gave up. It's like, I'm going to party it up. Both are sort of, uh, to me, sort of natural things you draw from some of the principles of the Bible, or it feels like. Um, well, as we look uh, this morning, we're going to look at a, what we call, there's a spiral that we touched on last week in the Bible of God's people and judges, where they sort of spiral towards uh, sin and, and this, this spiral, they, that relationship they end with God. And so here's what I want to say. Um, we want to answer the question this morning. I'm a sinner, and I'll never obey perfectly, yet my obedience matters. Okay? That's sort of what I think the Lord, one of the things the Lord, as we look at this spiral and what we find in the story of Judges. I'm a sinner, and I'll never obey perfectly, yet my obedience matters, doesn't it? Listen, great heresies have come within the church. Even the John Wesley, the famous Methodist founder method of the domination, moved in what we called a sinless perfection theology, where in the end he began to teach and think that maybe you could, if I remember correctly, that you could live perfectly on earth. Whew. So feel, feel the weight and the struggle of that. And so I hope that we can answer. We're going to try to figure that tension out. In uh, this morning, by answering two questions, um, what do we learn about man in this cycle that we're looking at, and then what do we learn about God in the cycle that's revealed here uh, in in uh, Judges in the first part? So let me pray. Lord, would you help us to um, would you help us to work through this tension that it seems like? How do we how do we process how? this endless cycle that your people seem to be in, and in many ways we can identify with. And where's the hope in that? And what should it mean for our life today? Um, Lord, I find myself looking at these passages all week and wrestling with the same thing. So would you help us? Would you convict us? Would you direct us? Would you, Holy Spirit, would you guide us? And um, help us to land of a place that's uh, biblical, and help us to land in a place um, that's rightly postured before you as we answer this. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so in chapter 3 of Judges, just so you know, just a couple of things to add before we answer the question, who, what do we learn about man? Um, 
Chapter 3 introduces the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shagmar. We don't, we're not going to look at Shagmar. It was just one sentence. We saw a little bit of Ehud, but I want to tell you a little bit about him. So we're looking mostly at Othniel this morning, the first judge mentioned. But Ehud, just to finish the story, you notice that what we read through 15a, the first part of it, is that the cycle happened again after Othniel uh, God used him to rescue his people, Ehud. The next judge comes, and he rescues the people, too, from their sin. But I just want to tell you a little bit, so when I refer to it later, you'll know. It's really kind of funny, his story and what the scriptures actually say. What he happened, it tells you there that he was a Benjamite of the tribe. He was left-handed. There's a lot of uh, people wondering what the left-handed mean. In general, it seems like it was probably military training. It was common to the Benjamite tribes to be left-handed. He's uh, Why is that important? He's going to put a knife uh, in his right leg, hide it under his thigh because most trained right-handed he's going to go to the king Egland he's going to hide that knife under there about an inch and a, a foot and a half long knife he's going to go to this king Egland and he's going to slip into his courts to go pay taxes a tribute for the people of God and Egland because of God's sin is ruling over God's people he puts that knife under there he's left-handed he sort of devises a plan sort of shifty plan he walks in gives him the taxes and the tribute then as he leaves and he circles back and he takes a knife and he stabs it into the stomach of Eglon the king, who's ruling over God's people for eight years. It lets us know that the king is a really fat dude. It actually says that in the Bible. And it says that when he drives the knife in, that he dives the knife, not just the blade, but the whole handle goes all the way in his stomach. And it says he poops on himself. It tells us that. And then the way he escapes, Ehud escapes, is that is that uh, he slips out while the servants and the other people wondering what happened to their king. Well, they come running up and they smell something and they're like, oh no, our king must be using the bathroom. So they stay outside and that Ehud uses that to devise a plan to get out. He slips out of the courts of the king, goes back, takes God's people and they conquer the land. Eventually they, they come in and like, something's wrong with our king. He's been smelling bad a long time. <laughs> and they come in and rescue him, okay? That's the other judge. It would have taken long, and I don't think Sarah would have let me, wanted to read more uh, this morning. She's like, not more big words. So that's what happened. So I wanted to add him to that because you see there's a cycle in a minute we're going to look at uh, that started, as mentioned with him. So what do we learn about man? Here's the cycle. And Othniel, the first king, from verses 7 uh, through, um, through 11 this is the place where we see the fullness of the cycle in, in, in the judges. The rest of them, you just sort of see parts of it or highlight it, but they're happening. We just assume they're happening in between the stages. But the, here, Othniel, when he becomes a judge and when he's called on by God, we see the whole, it's perfectly kind of demonstrated for us there. And here's what the cycle. Now, you can describe it in your own words. I borrowed someone who used all R's. I just think that's helpful. And here's the cycle. You'll see there in verse 7, relapse. Um, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Asheroth. So there's the relapse, which is really the relapse of God's people all the time. But it's pretty intense in Judges. So there's the relapse. They move away from God, right? Well, then there's some retribution. God's anger, he stirs towards his people. And this keeps happening over and over. And you'll notice there in verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled and he sold them into the hand of the king Cushan. And the people of Israel served that king. And so verse 2, uh, that's the second part. And then 
I don't love the word repent, but it's just an R. They don't fully repent. It's more just sort of they're just like, man, this is bad. Somebody help us. Because they don't really stop, right? But, but repent. They sort of turn to God and they cry out to God. In verse 9, but when the people of the Lord cried out, uh, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, then rescue. And every time the Lord hears them, he sends someone, raise up a deliverer of the people who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So, in one sense, when you look at this pattern, this pattern is the pattern of the whole Bible, of God's people, and him being faithful to them, and not, it happens all the time. And um, in one sense, all of us are in this cycle. You're in that cycle. At some level, in a process in your own life, you're in that cycle where you, you sort of move away from God. You can feel sort of the retribution, the consequences of that in your life in different areas. And then, the, um, uh, and then you sort of cry out, and we, and we get restored. In a sense, that it's not as exaggerated or extreme in this way, but we can sense that. I mean, have you ever thought about why the church of Corinth didn't make it? I mean, the apostles started those churches. Why aren't they, why aren't they going on today? Where's Ephesus? Where, I mean... You know, the PCA denomination, odd, the way this cycle is so strong and bad, we probably won't be around 100 years from now. I wish we would. What is it about the power of this cycle that people move? And Judges is going to show us that we keep spiraling downward. Um, can I just pause and say, do you have patterns in your life that you're like, gosh, I just keep coming back to the same struggle? You ever do that? Parents, you ever say, I'm not going to respond that way to my child this time. And psh, I do two weeks pretty good, and there I am, back in the same pattern. Or some diet I'm on, and I'm going to resolve to do this and eat next, and find myself. I mean, you can just pick any struggle of our lives. It's the New Year's resolution pattern. And so there's something scary about seeing a cycle like this. But there's also something gracious that God says, the world's sort of in a cycle. And can you pause and say, well, maybe I'm not as crazy or as bad. I'm not alone in what I think. But do you see that? All right? Then, I think that's one of the things you learn about that. I want to highlight a few things around that cycle, what we learn about men. So one of the things about men is that they are in a cycle. And um, next, I want you to see... That men can grow and make good decisions. Somehow in the midst of this cycle, men can grow and make good decisions. Othniel is one of those. He's categorized as a good judge. And I think Ehud is a good judge too. I think all three of these, the two are pretty good judges. And how they handle it. Now, some think that it's a step down from Othniel to Ehud. I, I personally don't think that, but I can see that, that he was a little bit more conniving. I think he was prudent in how he handled the king. But either way, then we get the, the no-name Shagmar, who is like, we don't have much about him. It's sort of a silent judge. But these are the good ones, and then the Samson's not going to be as good, and the rest of them are not going to be as good as these three. But Othniel was, a, was in general, not a perfect person. He was a sinner. We know the Bible teaches that. But he, he 
made some good decisions, was a good dude, and led in a good way. Look at this. Um, uh, he conquered a city. We mentioned over in Judges 1, we learn over in Judges 1, I'll read that for you, how he sort of comes on the scene. You remember Caleb, who was one of the uh, spies that went into the promised land and told him we can make it, and most of the other spies thought they couldn't, but Caleb says that. And so this is in the conquest of the promised land that God's people, which by the way, Judges, is God's people are in the promised land, and they're conquering and taking over, and the, the tribes are learning where or being assigned the places they're going to live. Well, let me read this. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber was formerly Kirathasaphir. And Caleb said, Who will attack this city and capture it? I will give Asham my daughter for a wife. Now that seems noble, like, oh, is she like property? But, but in those days, even the woman would have thought, You're going to hand me someone who's a great man and a conqueror. And it would have been a thing. Marriages are more arranged there. And Othino, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And then he gives, uh, he gives his wife to her. Now, what's really cool about this, so he comes on the scene, and they're like, we need somebody to capture this city. And he's like, I'll do it. And he does it. He shows great faith. Would you think of Caleb, who was a spy and showed faith? Othniel steps up. And his wife, which is really cool, uh, Aska, I'm sorry, I messed up her name. But she negotiates with her dad, and we need more land, which is really cool when we get to Deborah, by the way. Most of the time, God's works Start with women. You remember the midwives and the women who rescued the nation because they rescued Moses? And here the best king is with a woman of great faith who asks with confidence and comes down off her donkey to talk to her dad, Caleb. And so then when we look at the pattern that Othniel is in, I mean, it just tells us there's really, the fact, most commentators say the fact that the story and the cycle is so clean here he is. He's a good dude, probably has a good family. We learn that he and his wife, I mean, it's a, it's a good situation. He starts, and the next time we see him in the Bible, God raises him up, and he uses him to conquer and brings 40 years of, 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 um, of prospering or peace for his people. This guy was growing in the midst of this cycle. You see that? Men can do that. There's something to imitate about Othniel and his life there. But he is a human. And the works that he do, does do only last so long, only 40 years, which is really pointing to the true judge, right? We've already looked at whose work will last forever. But that's something we learned about man. Then next, we learn this, that men, um, judges, I think, wants us to learn from this pattern uh, about man is that it, it's really hard. And it gets harder... Uh, it gets harder to think about that men can go on this, this pattern when you realize what God has done for his people up to this point. I mean, let's look at verse 7 there. So, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil. Now, they really did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. Okay, so here's something we're learning about man right here. This is what the other few things I want you to learn. But what do we learn about man in this pattern? Learn here. God had less than two generations, and really Joshua has just died. And God has done some amazing things for these people. I mean, can you imagine being oppressed and God sending a person and you running out and literally a sea opens up and the waters go and you walk through it and you make it to the other side? To actually see that. 
And God take them there. And for him to be bringing them into a land, this land that they're fighting over is a prospering land. Remember, it's a, it's a desert world in the Near East where the Canaan is and all this. And this is milk and honey. And so he's bringing them to a place. And even out in the desert, they're coming for a place that food would really fall on the ground. Like, it'd be like me living in every day. Cheeseburgers are coming down everywhere. I mean, can you imagine? It literally happened that your provisions every day were just, all you had to do was pick them up. And that you were like, where do we drink from? And there's a rock that comes out of the water. And doing that, they had done that. They had seen and known the plagues that God had done. And the Passover lamb, they just put blood on their, on the, over their doorposts. And the angel of death passed over them. I mean, it's just a big event. He saw them. It isn't just some kind of preacher telling you about it. These people lived it. They were there. And yet they find themselves moving away from God. It gets hard to look at this when they wind up evil. And so the question, which I thought uh, Bruce asked in our study, in our Connect group this week, is why do people leave God when they do such great things? Am I fading in and out on you? I'm not? Okay. I feel like this thing is one of those electric cars that goes dead when you're at the light or something. Maybe. I don't know what that is. It's making me nervous. (laughs) All right. But here's why we leave God. Why do we really leave God? Why is it that he could do something so great for them and they could leave him? Why could they have such great provision? And um, here's the first answer what we learned, and they were doing evil. is because you and I are more sinful than you know. That we really, that's really the doctrine of total depravity, which we believe in. And total depravity means that It doesn't mean, it means that all of us have a sin nature. Even if you're a follower of Christ, the sin that entangled us still dwells in us until heaven one day. We still have to fight it. And that sin is so tough and so bad, it is so powerful that you can't realize how strong it actually is. And the doctrine of total depravity says this, not everybody is as sinful as they could be, meaning that not everybody becomes becomes Hitler's and does and acts on their sin, but there's not a single part of your being and soul that's not contaminated with sin. We're not capable of stopping the cycle in some sense. You want to know why? We're not, in many ways, it is is that far-reaching. And um, it's such a powerful, powerful trial. And it's been that way from the, the heart of that And the heart of that sin is really what you and I are always battling because of our sin is that we're battling selfishness and unbelief. We don't think God is good good, and we don't think God is king and we want to be king. And so basically all of us live in this struggle of either building the kingdom of God and living under his kingship or building the kingdom of self. And that's been the story from the garden. Satan tempted her to be like God. Build your own garden. Be, have the knowledge that he has to be like him. And so the struggle to build a kingdom for yourself is always present, and it never lets up. And it won't let up till heaven. Today, when you go home, you'll have multiple decisions in your life where you'll be pushed to figure out, am I going to build a kingdom of self? Or am I going to build the kingdom of God? It never lets up. It's because it's far-reaching. 
And so um, that's one of the reasons we leave God is because we still have sin in us. We always are. Doesn't that make you want to long for heaven? Because that's the promise of heaven is that presence of sin will no longer be there for your people. Now, a non-Christian is enslaved to it. But a Christian has some power to fight and come over it, like Othniel, especially when God works on them, which is what the passage tells us, that God's Spirit was on him. And in order to overcome that pattern, what you and I need is God to work on us and for his salvation. But you're like, well, wait a minute. We're going, you said, but we become a Christian, and now he's living in me, and God's in me. Shouldn't I overcome it all the time? Ah, that's that sinless perfection. We're still in that tension, aren't we? Well, one other thing to notice is that they says that they forget the Lord and their God, and they serve. And so when self, when you begin to build the kingdom of self, what you do is you have amnesia around God because you're preoccupied with yourself. And so when you begin to do that, they forgot the Lord. Um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is, uh, or one that this always stuck out to me, is in Matthew 16. When Jesus has literally, in the previous chapter, fed 5,000 and 4,000 people with five loaves and two fish, right? Isn't that how it goes? And they get to another place, and they left there, and Jesus begins to teach them something, a big lesson. But the disciples aren't listening. The scriptures tell us they start talking among themselves. And you know what they were worried about? They were like, oh, we forgot to bring bread with us. He just fed 5,000, 3,000, 4,000 people. And they're like, and Jesus pauses and actually says, don't you remember? What did they do? They begin to think only about themselves, their needs, their hungry, and their growing belly. And the only thing they think about is them. And they have amnesia. And guess what was happening to God's people? As they moved into here, they began to think about themselves first. The kingdom of self is always rivaling the kingdom of God in your heart. And they move to that, and they forgot. I was, <laughs> this is a personal example, a confession. I went to the beautiful, Haven Care had their banquet this Monday night. And um, I went there, and, uh, and I was running, knew I was going to get there right at the time, but based on where I was coming, and it was over at Campbellsville University, and I'm pulling up, and the place, I thought I was just going to park and run in. It is covered up, all right? Why well, am I sort of pull over and think I'm going to park here? It's probably illegal, but I don't know. Well, somebody's parked there, so I'm going to get behind them as close to the building. And then the campus security pulls up, can't park there. I'm like, shoot, you know? And so I end up having to park. I parked, it was full. I parked four park. It was a five-minute walk to get in the building. I'm complaining and frustrated and like, I just want to get here. I'm going to be late and the Durham's are going to be mad at me. And I forgot how much I've prayed for Haven Care. I forgot how faithful our people have been, the finances, the leadership, the Durham's. I couldn't celebrate that the stinking parking lots were full. Oh, how we forget. And it tells us that they forgot God. You know, the Lord's Supper is about remembrance. That's why we come to the table. To help us to remember. And then it tells us that they served Bells and Astaroth. And they did. They went to idols. And they, um, not only did they forget, so when you forget God, you will move towards your idols. Now, these were graven images that they built. But listen, the idols, what is an idol? An idol is anything that, that rivals God in your heart and your affections. It becomes more important to you than that. And these two gods became that for them. And let me just say this. 
the four categories that probably all idols fall in for everybody. You've heard me say this before. There's four, four categories are control, approval, comfort, and power. Which you think of those, if you think about any idol of your life, something you worship, that's usually the core struggle. Approval, they can fall in that uh, power. Um, uh, approval, power, control, and comfort. Usually they fall into those fours, which makes sense because that's sort of the garden, right? God gave us great comfort. He gave us power, appropriate power in relation to him. He was with us and he, we were approved of his love and that, and we had control and power and we were, we were there with him. But those now things, we look for that and we like to be in control and we like to be in control of our power and those things. So here's what I mean. So, you know, I could, uh, you could, one person can struggle with money and really have money as a sin and be extravagant but you could struggle with money because you like the comfort that it brings you and the other person might like the power that money brings them do you see that and so so many of our sins and struggles you can trace it back now my idol is comfort like I don't get mad at my children in my home seems like I saw it keeps coming to my mind but I get I get frustrated with them because not because I want to rule them and I want to have power and I like control of them mine is they disrupt my comfort okay I've learned that over the years and, um, and when, when that happens, look, these two, these two, these two uh, gods that they bowed down to, Baal and Asheroth, Baals were prosperity gods. They were gods that delivered on all that you needed, prosperity for the, fr- for the crops and the land and the rain, prosperity. And Asheroth was a, a, a fertility god. It was sex. So prosperity and sex. Does that sound new? As a struggle? So if you have amnesia and it, you all of a sudden forget the goodness of God and you go into this land and you get there and it feels like, I forget God's goodness and it's like, man, his, his sex ethics are a little tight and uh, I have to work in order to get my, I mean, you can see they're processing. Those laws seem hard to me. And now I join a people and I blend with them. I like that a little more. A lot looser ways to think. It was different from God. Now, theirs was destructive, and that's what God's trying to tell them, that their ways are doing it. But that's what idols are. You can see that not only did they forget God, but when you forget God, you'll begin to bow down towards something else. In particular, what your core idols are and what you want them to be. And so it is interesting um, that there are times where bowing down to idols is sort of a time period in our lives where it's fertile ground for that to happen. And one of the fertile grounds for that, it seems that the judges is letting us know, when can this happen? The fertile time ground for that is when we're at ease and in prosperity. Every time it lets us know that they have years of prosperity or they have been in the, or they have it, we come after, soon after they have some prosperity, sin seeps in. And that's sort of what we're like um, ease and prosperity and so you know what uh, we didn't read that but remember me telling you that the king was fat and the scriptures tell you that I think what it's trying to show is that he was lazy and enjoying his prosperity he was feeding on the tribute and the taxes that the people were bringing him and he began at fat and at ease and was susceptible to Ehud to take advantage to conquer him And that's what you and I can be like, particularly in times of prosperity. And even what seems to be the blessing of God, you and I are really susceptible at that point. Why? Because we want to build the kingdom of self pretty quickly. Because we're totally 
uh, saturated with sin. So um, that's some of the things. And so, um, so man can change, and God does change men's, but we never achieve the perfection that we want because we're caught up in this cycle, and we have amnesia, and we have a kingdom of self we want to build, and so we never really get there. So, but what do we learn about God very quickly here? And um, what do we learn about God in verses 8 through 11? Here's what we learn. First, you can see that God really does hate sin. Do you see it says his anger kindles against it? So can I just remind us today, whatever sins you have, whatever you commit, whatever, what you think of omission or commission, that God hates it. So much so that he punished his son for it. So he hates sin. And don't lose sight of that, that God detests it. And sometimes I think we think he sort of tolerates and we misappropriate what his love means. No, he loves us in our sin. No, he has dealt with our sin in Christ, but he does hate it. And his anger kindles towards that. And it kindled and he finally settled, settled that anger in Christ. But don't forget that about God. He's holy. You want him to hate sin. Otherwise, he's not holy. He's not God if he doesn't hate it. And he does hate that. The next thing we learn is that he does require obedience of his people. The reason he's upset is because they didn't obey what God had said to do. He had told them to get rid of the idols, destroy the people, which is a hard thing. We looked at last week. But he required them to obey all the way. And they were halfway doing it. Which, by the way, when you get new idols, that's what you do. You halfway obey because what they do, they do like I do. I sort of like my idols. I sort of like God. Well, see, God told him immediately in Judges 1, he says, listen, go in and destroy their idols and make no covenants with these people. You know what we learn in Judges 1? They're walking along into the promised land. They meet one family. And the family says, they say, hey, can you help us? Tell us about the land so we can conquer it. If you'll tell us the truth, we won't kill you. Although God had just told him to kill everyone. They begin to negotiate. That sounds pretty good. This seems wise. This seems smart. They're going to give us more information. We're going to do that. Ehud, uh, Judah did the same thing. God said, go conquer. And they wanted to halfway do it. He said, you're going to go conquer the people. Ehud, I'll be with you. Not Ehud, sorry. Judah. The Judah was the first tribe he sends in there. What does Judah do? He says, okay, God, you'll be with me. Hey, Simeon, you mind helping me? We can do this together. Do you see what happens? God wants full obedience. Not some negotiated obedience. And we do that with his commands all the time. And we spiritualize them and make them sound better just like they could. Hey, I was nice to the family. It was kind. It seems prudent to do this. We let one family go, but we're going to do the whole thing. I mean, God says to honor and to not steal. And yet I might steal a little bit here. It's probably he doesn't know my circumstances. I mean, you see, that's who we are. And God cares about full obedience so much that he sent his son, who was the only one who could fully obey. Only the God-man. Someone had to obey the law, and Jesus did that for us. But God cares about it. The other thing I want you to see is that the, that the reason that men succeed is because God does it. That's the reason often you know, it tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came on him and Ehud. Men succeed, and you and I succeed. It is true what I quoted to you, that verse about Paul. He says, I only am what I am by the grace of God. That is true. Men succeed because God is with them. Don't forget that. And it's, and it's cool that God does join people to help them exceed. Hear that. He's a God who wants you and, uh, and can help you do that and does help people to do that. But here's lastly where we'll finish. And he does bring blessing. And so, uh, well, he does bring blessing. And what a compassionate God. Although we are, they are evil and he's kindling, as soon as they cry out, he's a compassionate father who cry, who's like, okay, I'll help you. While his anger kindles. Do you see the tension? We talked about that last week. He's a compassionate God who longs to be compassionate to you in this way. But here's the last thing I want you to see. Is that when we see the word anger, oftentimes we think anger is opposite, uh, is, um, 
wouldn't be the opposite of love. But in this situation, all the commentators say that this anger is an anger that's the opposite of love. It's because of his love that he has anger. Anger isn't always the opposite of love. Sometimes apathy could be the opposite of love. But in this one, it's this. When Brittany and I first got married, we were floored about how angry and how volatile our fights could be. We were a little embarrassed. You want to know why they were volatile? And why our anger stirred so much? Because we loved each other. We had never loved like this before. And therefore, our anger kindled. And we said things we thought we could never say. And it's the profound mystery that marriage is associated with union with Christ. That it's a mystery that displays the world. It's a profound mystery, an institution that God created. So the strikes and the hurts are big and the stakes are big when it comes to that marriage. But that's why it was such a big deal for us. And we were beginning to say, oh, it's because we love that our anger stirs while we feel so hurt. The hints are everywhere in Judges that that's the point here as well. Remember when God said, I want to make a covenant with you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people? That's relational. I want to be with you, and you to be with me. Earlier in Judges... And all throughout the Old Testament, God uses the language, when this happens, of adultery, describing when God's people bow down to other idols. God's not just angry that we go in this spiral. He's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. He's the groom. We're the bride. And it breaks his heart. And most of the time, let's say, you know, say I, I went and squandered all the money we had, which wouldn't be very much. <laughs> but it's like I just kept it as like, shoot, I lost all the money. But, but if I have to go tell Brittany, that's a bigger deal. Because it'll be heartbreaking, this relationally. And most of the time, the way we think, and God's people were doing this, is that we think that God is only about the laws. That it's just about, we, oh, you did what I didn't tell you to do. He's heartbroken that the relationship is severed and that he wants to be with you. So you remember that tension I told you about that we started with, the reason you can't be perfect and we can't obey perfectly? It's because God in his sovereign power, one of the things he's doing is that he's making sure that we remain relational. Let me say it, let me, let me, tell, let me explain it this way. When you strive for perfection and you're disappointed you don't make it and you sin, it drives you to the one who is perfect and you need him. Remember in the garden when God created man and we looked at our men's retreat? Man was made out of the dirt to work it. And we learn when the curse comes, God curses the very thing that man is good at. Why would he do that? Because he wanted man to be frustrated so that he would turn to the one who could save him. And the woman childbearing 
She was, childbearing uniquely would be struggled. The thing that her body and everything was made for uniquely different from the man was to give life, and yet he curses that. Why? So that he, she will turn to Christ. Men, your job will always be frustrating. Women, childbearing, it's all, and it's frustrating for everybody. Work is cursed. But do you see that in the beauty of it? God in some sense, he turns it upside down, and we can't be perfect because he doesn't want us to forget that it's a relational thing. And so when you see judges, yes, they broke his law, and they do spiral, and sin is that, and we should obey. But we got to remember that this thing was in a relational thing the whole time. Do you believe that God is heartbroken over the spirals in your life, and he longs for you to relationally come to him? And to bring that to him and admit, I am not perfect, and I need you. Glory to you. I'm so thankful that you love me to be with me. Um, let me just ask, what areas of your life are spiraling and out of a bad cycle? So what? I would encourage you to ask God, go to God in those. And are you in a time of ease, maybe, in prosperity? Are you like the king who was <laughs> figuratively fat? Be sobered by that. And then also, I encourage you to turn to Christ. That the Jesus didn't want you to reach for any other stars like Casey Kasem. He wanted us to reach to him, that we might find him. Let's pray. Father, as we respond in singing this morning, as we uh, look to that, would we believe and see that the cycle is that we're going down, but you're a faithful, kind, and good God who, who uh, is heartbroken over the things we, places we find ourselves and that you want to be near, want to, be near to us, that it... That, you're, um, that you love us, that you died for us to restore that, 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 uh, that relationship, and would you do that? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.